Good afternoon and welcome to Air Brooklyn. This is your host, Ben Piven. Today we'll be talking about the divisive American political climate from a global macro perspective, how the current turbulence is impacting U.S. relations with the rest of the world. The geopolitical situation is truly bizarre, tragic, and these are deeply fascinating times. We are joined by Leon Levy of the Eurasia Group, so let's get started here. Thank you very much for being on Air Brooklyn and talking to us about global macro and uh, what's going on in the world, the state of politics in America. Let's start from the top. How did you get involved in Eurasia Group and what exactly do you usually focus on here? Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. How I ended up at Eurasia Group is a very interesting story. I actually come from a background in Greek politics. And so while I was a grad student here in New York, one of my professors was the former prime minister of Greece. I happened to be in Greece one Christmas and this former prime minister had decided to start his own political party. I sent him an email wishing him good luck and he asked me what I was doing at the moment and I didn't really have a job. Uh, I was right out of grad school. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I said I'm free and he asked me to come down and join his campaign. So I did that. I got to see Greek politics at the ground level. It was a great experience, but after that was over, I said, I kind of want to come back to the States. I want to continue dealing with politics, but I don't know what exact form that's going to take. I had always heard about this place called Eurasia Group that did something called political risk consulting, which sounded fascinating, but I really didn't know what it was. As a firm, what Eurasia Group does is basically try to explain the politics of the world and how it impacts markets, how it drives businesses. And increasingly, as companies start to invest in foreign countries, they have to deal with the ramifications of the politics in those foreign countries. And it's always better to get ahead of the curve. And that's what Eurasia Group tries to do. So we both explain how the politics impacts business and markets and how not necessarily they should address it, but how they should deal with the fallout. And we explain, we don't necessarily predict what's going to happen, but we explain what's going to happen and why we think a certain thing is going to happen and why it won't happen. And these are the signposts we laid out. So that's what I wanted to do. It seemed very interesting. And when I applied, there was a position for the global macro team and I was hired by Ian Bremer to come in and help him work on some projects. Ian has a particularly unusual billet here for Eurasia Group. So the majority of the people that work at Eurasia Group have a regional specialty. I'm a Saudi Arabia specialist, I'm a France specialist. Ian takes a step back and looks at the world as it is as a whole. And what he likes to do is sort of pick political trends in specific countries and sort of show how they connect to each other. I help him do that. I help identify the patterns and we talk about these big, broad, cross-national movements, something that a person who's a specialist can't necessarily do because they're focused on their one country. So we talk about Europe in general. We talk about the U.S.-Europe relationship, how that's going, how that's not going. Well, there's a lot of different things that you focus on that Eurasia Group focuses on, but it's quite an impressive array of problems and analyses. Would you say that global macro is sort of the overarching thematic top-level concept that you're working with? Does that really 
define your approach here in particular and the organization's focus? Well, it certainly drives the way that I look at the world and the way that Ian looks at the world, but I can't say that this is the primary lens through which we look at the world, right? Because most clients who make investments in foreign countries, they care a lot less about the geopolitical impacts or the big trends. They care more about what's happening on the ground in the country where their investments are. So this is just something that Ian gets tasked with a lot when he does interviews. People like to ask him broad questions and Ian loves to answer these broad questions and there are very few people that are as qualified as Ian to do that. What it sounds like, Leon, is that there is a political realm and ultimately that is extraordinarily important and that's where everyone here has some sort of focus on politics in some part of the world. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the economic sort of business financial realm. That's where people are making material concrete decisions about where to put their money or what products or services to buy or sell. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile these sort of two different realms? It, it seems like that is that somewhat defines what Eurasia Group does, is it, it creates this bridge where there isn't always an understanding of the political from the economic side or of the economic from the political side. Mm -hmm. um, do you prioritize one or over the other, or are they sort of both equally... Yeah, so we always prioritize politics. That's our company motto. We are politics first. That's what we care about. We do not get into the business of telling our clients what we think are good investments. That is up to them to decide. We simply explain the pol political situation on the ground of places that they're thinking about investing. What they do with that information is their business, right? And it would take us in a completely different league. Um, in order to give financial advice, you need to be accredited by certain agencies and institutions and things like that. So that's not what we do. We simply try to explain the world as best as we understand it from the political perspective and what clients do with that information is up to them. So in terms of the U.S. right now at this juncture, what does that sort of politics first perspective tell you what are your clients most concerned about right now? Where is global macro at the moment looking at our President Donald Trump? That's an excellent question. I should probably preface this by saying that of all the regional specialties that we have here at Eurasia Group, the U.S. was always the smallest. We have a two-person team simply because no political risk ever emanated from the U.S. up until 2016, November 8th, 2016. That's when everything got flipped on its head. What's interesting is a lot of the people who do a global macro at this firm have ended up talking a lot about the United States because that's what our clients want to know. And some clients have really good deep questions about how Donald Trump is going to affect the business environment in X, Y, or Z country. Some clients just want to come up and say, make sense of Donald Trump for us. And that's when you're put in a very difficult position because he's a very difficult guy to understand and to see. And so a lot of it is playing catch up. Every time that you see him go out on the stump, he says something different that throws up in the air 70 years of American foreign policy and he just seems to be talking off the cuff. It's very difficult for that. It makes for a very chaotic geopolitical environment. At the same time, it's good for Eurasia Group because 
it sort of hammers home that it really does matter who is in political leadership in a given country, right? There used to be this idea that if you ever took international relations as an undergrad, right, there's this black box theory where people would just look at countries and say, you know what, we don't care about the specifics or who's ruling this or that. Countries are rational. They're going to act in their own self-interest and things like that. If nothing else, I think Donald Trump shows that it really does matter who's up top and it can really drive markets one way or the other. Now, with this sort of cult of personality around Donald Trump at the moment, Mm -hmm. it seems like the U.S. is encountering a lot of difficulties in sending out these shockwaves as a result of geopolitical turbulence here at home. Given that the number one risk factor in Ian's report at the beginning of 2017 was, in fact, this independent free America, do you see the situation here as being as chaotic as your organization predicted that it it would become by this point, uh, barely six months into Trump's term in office. I think a lot of it depends on whether or not we're talking about the domestic politics of it all or the international politics of it all. So independent America was always targeted for more international. This was the risk. The risk was that you would have an America that suddenly became unmoored and would not necessarily respect the alliances that it always had. Much like, let's say, Trump's NATO uh, Article 5 flub where he refused to actively tell our allies that in NATO that we would come to their defense should any of them be attacked. That's really the concern of independent America. We never really got into a risk of Donald Trump going rogue and then that would reverberate in the domestic side. So that has just given it a new dimension. But independent America was an international phenomenon and that's the way that it was framed. On the one hand, it seems like economically and financially the U.S. is chugging along at a pretty decent clip with the Mm -hmm. exception of one or two precarious events with the stock market over the last, let's say, two weeks since the North Korea Mm. uh, conflagration threatened to erupt. The stock market has been doing quite well. Unemployment is fantastic by most measures. By and large, the the recovery, so-called, is is doing decently. For the sake of your clients and your analysis, then, as, as you're saying, the issue is not so much economic turbulence then here at home. It's more the fear of ripple effects within the political realm. Does that summarize what the concern is that most of the people that you're communicating with at home and abroad are are really worried about? I guess you could say that. It's just we are in such an unusual situation that it's very difficult to parse what exactly it is we're worried about at any one given moment. And it seems that on a daily basis, you're worried about something else. We were talking about nuclear war with North Korea a couple weeks ago. Somehow that managed to get shoved off the top headline. And then we just went from Charlottesville to yesterday night he held a rally in Arizona. And it's just very difficult difficult to keep up with the news cycle, but there are so many elements and it's constantly evolving. And at the very least so far, Trump has shown no signs of slowing down, which is quite an impressive feat considering he's, what, 74 years old? You'd think that he'd want to take a break every once in a while, but Steve Bannon completely fell out of my head until I realized, oh, wait a second, that wasn't even a week ago that Steve Bannon was ousted from the White House. That in any other administration, I should say a typical administration, that would have been a news story for at least a solid month. Now these news stories last for 24 hours, if that. A lot of it is the rapid pace of the changes that are coming down the pike as well, which is unnerving a lot of folks. You're just 
describing the sort of rapid pace of change, would you say that this is really about the rapid pace of chaos and increased disorder? Because I kind of believe that if the change were occurring in a way that were productive or constructive, then from the perspective of other countries in the world or from the perspective of the investment community in the U.S., then it wouldn't be perceived as so threatening. Even if it were slightly disruptive, change could be occurring in a way that is building upon our society. But the way it's occurring now, it just seems like so many of those, at least within the political realm, and, and perhaps we should separate the realms a little bit, because our politics are so chaotic, but the economic realm is so seemingly stable and consistent and able to maintain the sense of immunity from dysfunctional politics. We don't have a dysfunctional economy at all right now. Mm -hmm. There are obviously things that are signs of trouble and we need to work on for the future, whether it's automation or discouraged workers, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it may be. Um, but in so many ways, that political system is such a disaster, whereas the economy, it's, it's actually okay. Look, I agree with you. The American economy at this present moment is doing all right. It's nowhere near some of the other more dysfunctional economies that exist out there. There's this perception, largely in the media, that mm -hmm. this age that we're living through, mm -hmm. as you say, gives Eurasia Group more work. There's this idea that the disruption is so inherently problematic and everybody mm -hmm. wants to know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And so for political commentators, geopolitical analysts, there's so much material to work with and the pace of events is occurring at, at such a rapid clip that there's so much fodder to write about, to speak about. But my take is that much of that is, is contained in the sort of political media realm mm -hmm. and even though it may kind of parallel things that do need to happen in the economic realm, but, but the chaos is largely political and, and if you Obviously, the business community has been rattled by so many of the mm -hmm. things that Donald Trump has said, mm -hmm. most particularly with regards to Charlottesville and the fact that two and almost three of these sort of business councils mm -hmm. um, just disintegrated. Yeah. That being said, I think that's a way for the business community to segregate itself from those problems that exist within the political sphere. It's just sort of fascinating how there is somewhat of, of a wall and the fallout has been contained in a way. The reality of the situation is Donald Trump's presidency so far is highly unusual for the United States. It's not that unusual when you take a broader look at the political situations around the world. And so American pundits or people that are based in the U.S. in general, they're prone a little bit to hysteria simply because it's so unusual from where it is that we're coming from a political background. But there was a fantastic piece that was written by an op-ed writer for the Washington Post last week, I believe, that was a take on Charlottesville. What it would be like if we were writing about Charlottesville about a third world country. That was great. And it was phenomenal because yeah. you see how many of the common tropes that we identify in other countries suddenly are applicable mm -hmm. to us mm -hmm. here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And some of it has to do with the fact that we're just 
not used to it here in the US. I think some of it is some hubris on our part. We thought, hey, our political system is better than this and we are not subject to the same risks that these other more underdeveloped economies and political systems are. And we're realizing, no, politics is a truly global phenomenon. It's something that people have to grapple with, you know, day in, day out. And it's something that evolves through generations. And just like there are financial sort of cycles of boom and bust, there are also political cycles of boom and bust. Now, the problem is financial cycles of boom and bust, they happen every seven to eight years, and we can tell when they're coming. Political cycles move in 70 and 80 years. This is the very first big political seismic change that we're getting as a worldwide phenomenon since World War II. People don't have a lot of experience with that. How could you? It's interesting how you articulate this impact of the Trumpist, Trumpism evolution with the rest of the world. And mm -hmm. one of the things I noticed in taking stock of some of the material that Eurasia Group has put out there recently is that Trump is not seen as an aberration. In fact, he's seen as a part of a larger pattern of nationalism, nativism, anti-immigration, xenophobic movements across the West. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, to some extent, this commonality or overlap with the populist nationalist movements in the Middle East as well. So what sense do you have that Trump really is integrated with larger ideological insurgency throughout the world against the established world order that was established um, after World War II, as you said? I think that's an excellent question. I also think that Donald Trump is doing Donald Trump. I don't think he's given this much thought beyond what's in his personal self-interest and what's good for his own political career. But you're absolutely right in identifying that these are big political movements that are moving across countries. And we have an entire department here at Eurasia Group that's called the Global Analytics Team. They're doing some fascinating work. One of the things that they're working on, which I find really interesting as of late, is identifying how the different forms of populism take place. So there's an economist at Harvard named Danny Roderick, who just wrote a very interesting paper about left-wing populism versus right-wing populism. And the way that you see is that usually when it all comes back to globalization and its discontents, right? But you have the people who are upset because of the e economic ramifications of uh, globalization, and those tend to produce leftist populists, meaning more on the left side of the political spectrum. So think of the Syriza government in Greece or Podemos in Spain, right? And then on the other hand, you have other impacts of globalization like mass migration, and that tends to foster a more nativist right wing. So you have the Eastern European countries, and then you have countries like here in the U.S. where it's an element of both. So it's both the left wing and the right wing. You know, some people are upset because of technology coming in and taking their jobs. Some people are upset because they're migrants who are coming in and they believe that they're taking their jobs. There's a hollowing out middle class here. You can't really talk away. It really depends on who you think is to blame for that. But the reality is, is that there are plenty of reasons given globalization for people to feel disenfranchised. It's a really good way of sort of integrating the way that those disparate political evolutions happen, whether it's in Greece or Spain, Eastern Europe and the U.S., and to try to gauge those parallels between them. One of the things that I'm trying to uh, develop a better understanding of with regards to the Trump approach to geopolitics is 
he came into office saying, okay, we've got Germany and Japan and Saudi Arabia and all these countries where the U.S. is really traditionally very active in investing in a more stable, secure order for those other continents that are far from the homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we can start with Europe, since um, we've been talking a lot about Europe. Germany or Ukraine, they're these sort of these examples where Trump came in swearing that he would pull back and spend fewer resources of the U.S.'s on defense mm-hmm. and care about what's going on at home home more so. And and I've read that um, Ian Bremmer said there's really this, this current within the American political scene right now, this kind of independent America that maybe should be called protectionist or isolationist, but in many ways that doesn't necessarily capture the full realm of this sentiment, mm-hmm. that there's a legitimate argument to be made that countries like Germany should be putting more down into their self-defense and that the U.S. can't possibly care for or look over or whatever it is that the U.S. used to provide in terms of leadership, mm-hmm. Europe seems a pretty egregious example of how whatever the balance of power is on the continent between Russia and the rest, it is beyond our ability right now to provide that leadership, to encourage or compel other countries to accept our leadership in such a multipolar world. And so I'm just wondering if there's certain aspects of the Trump doctrine that may be seen as isolationist when you give it sort of negative spin, but in reality are realist, pragmatic, functional, if given a more rational evaluation. Is there space for that within your sort of analytic? Sure. A lot of what Trump does and says has to do with the messenger who's delivering the message. Of course, he then goes off and starts spouting some crazy stuff about white supremacists and KKK, and you start worrying that this is a more deep-seated issue. But taken separately, there are a lot of elements of Donald Trump's foreign policy that hold water. You know what? It is crazy that only five countries of NATO are actually meeting the 2% threshold of military funding that everybody has agreed to. Because Donald Trump is, I'm not going to say he's crazy, but he's often perceived as being crazy by other countries or the leaders of countries. He's getting people to move that they otherwise wouldn't do. A lot of countries have said that they are now going to ramp up their own military budget contributions. Donald Trump takes a harder line with China. A couple weeks ago, he ordered the U.S. Trade Representative to start looking and seeing whether or not uh, Chinese firms are stealing American intellectual property. The day after, China actually cracked down on North Korea sanctions, something that they had basically never done before. And a lot of people point fingers and say, look, it's because of Donald Trump that China is taking it. China doesn't want a trade war with the U.S. China never wanted a trade war with the U.S. But with someone like Barack Obama, they always considered a trade war is too costly for both sides, and Barack Obama knows it or George Bush knows it, things like that. With Donald Trump, they say, well, he knows it, he might do it anyway. It is a bit unusual. Being a bull in a china shop for, uh, you know, <laughs> lack of a better term uh, or pun, um, you know, has some benefits, and you are actually going to break some plates. But it's an unusual position, and I think what's most disconcerting for most countries is that The U.S. was always supposed to be the rock of the geopolitical community. It's no matter what else would happen, you could always count on the U.S. And suddenly, you can't. And 
once it's out of the bottle, it's very hard to recapture that magic. Meaning, whoever succeeds uh, Trump, whether it's in four years or in eight years, like that, is going to have to make some very difficult pitches to countries. Right? It depends if they also agree with the role that the U.S. was playing before Donald Trump, which is essentially being the world's sole superpower and being the world's policeman and things like that. If they want the U.S. to reassume that role. They're going to have to go around and convince countries that the U.S. is ready and capable and willing to play this role, because there are other people who are stepping up. First of all, China doesn't want to be global policemen. They've seen what's happened to the U.S. in the last 70 years. What China does really want is to become the economic powerhouse that the U.S. was for the last 70 years. Right? It's no coincidence that suddenly China opens up the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, which is essentially a competitor to the World Bank and IMF, because. In addition to doling out the money, which is always important, that builds soft capital. When you give development funds and things, you get a way into these countries, and you sort of get to shape the discourse and what happens. And you know, it's something that the U.S. has been doing for 70 years. China says that, looks at that, and says, "We want that too." There's no shortage of people who see this leadership vacuum and say, "We could do that job, and it's going to benefit us, and we're going to come off the better for it." The difficulty is you don't have any one country that wants to assume all the jobs that the U.S. was playing, and we've never really lived in a world like that, and that's driving a lot of instability. There's definitely a lot of chaos out there in the world, and one of the most chaotic areas, of, as we've discussed, is the North Korean arena. You mentioned Steve Bannon, and I think one of the fascinating things about his demise is that he gave this interview to a very progressive magazine、mm -hmm. right before he was. Forced out the door or resigned,、mm -hmm. however you want to look at it. And and one of the notable things he said in that interview with regards to foreign policy was that we're in a catch-22 of sorts in in North Korea with China. There's no good answer because within the first hour, the first day, the number of casualties on the South Korean side would be extraordinarily large. And he says there is no military solution here. And so. Even though, obviously, in terms of white nationalists and the alt right, we have this idea of Steve Bannon, which is clearly based on reality that he has propped up this ideological base that previously underestimated, now feared by many, and and frankly quite disturbing. But then, when it comes to certain foreign policy points like North Korea, you're like, wait a minute, do any of the pundits know where we're going on that issue?、Hmm. And maybe Bannon was. A little bit right, we'd have to admit, or is that wrong to assume that he got something correct there? Look, Steve Bannon was correct in saying that until somebody shows an American leader a plan where millions of South Koreans don't die within the first two hours of it. So the problem with North Korea is that they have a weak hand, but they know how to play it well. So they have positioned. Thousands of pieces of artillery just overlooking Seoul. It doesn't even need the missiles or the nuclear weapons that the world is currently fixated on. North Korea already has the firepower to take out Seoul. Who wants to be the person responsible for taking the lives of this many millions of people on their shoulders? He's right in saying that until that problem gets solved. Now you have a number of other actors who have their own interests. China is terrified. 
China has been North Korea's lifeline to the outside world for years now. The last thing that it wants is a North Korean collapse. And the reason it doesn't want a North Korean collapse is they don't want to be flooded by refugees, right? Mm -hmm. They also don't want loose nukes. Let's say, assume that the North Koreans already have nuclear weapons. If there's a regime collapse, suddenly there are nukes up for grabs in Asia and who knows who's controlling them, right? Another concern for China is that if North Korea collapses, that's going to give the U.S. pretext to move in to support their ally, South Korea, and give them a military perch that's right next to China. And China doesn't want the U.S. close to them. China, at the very least, doesn't want to be the world's policeman, but it wants to sort of control the military game in its own backyard in Asia. So from that perspective, they just don't want the U.S. there. So they have no interest in watching the North Korean regime collapse. South Korea has a similar concern. All of which is to say is that all the countries that are involved in this situation have their own very legitimate concerns and they conflict. And until somebody is willing to say, look, I'm willing to take a hit on this and maybe I'm not going to get my ideal situation, but it's going to be better for the, for the rest of the world if X, Y, and Z happens, you're not going to have any solution to this problem. And so Kim Jong-un is going to continue developing his nuclear weapons and his intercontinental ballistic missiles until he can reach mainland the U.S. and then the U.S. or whatever other country is going to be forced to act. That's the problem. At a certain point, somebody is going to be forced to act one way or the other. And it's very hard to game out who it's going to be. Right. The likelihood is something like, I was reading about this um, survey done of geopolitical experts and it was like 35% was a consensus probability of the U.S. going to war over North Korea in the next, I don't forget exactly how many years that but this was. We don't think that a military solution is in the cards from the U.S., but crazier things have happened and that's the difficulty is that the way things move now is so fast and sometimes all it takes is a split decision and things can go off the rails and end up in a situation that you don't want to be in. And this is a problem. And this is something that we're now going to have to factor in technology. It's technology is at the root of it. Technology, it makes weapons more dangerous. Technology ramps up the speed through which information is disseminated. It ramps up the ability to issue threats and counter threats. And, you know, a, a tweet, Donald Trump tweets out, for example, and says, we no longer allow transgender people in the military. The chaos ensues. Is this a direct order from the president, the commander in chief? Do service uh, chiefs have to listen to it? We don't know. And we haven't put up the proper safeguards yet. Is your current perception that Donald Trump is not just doing reputational damage to the U.S. overseas, but doing real concrete harm to broader economic interests and to our alliances? Do you think his actions at present will have lasting negative impacts on our ability to exercise U.S. leadership and look out for our interests abroad? I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, it's difficult because on paper, Donald Trump should be good for business, right? He wants to lower taxes. He wants to make the U.S. more business friendly. On the other hand, he also wants protectionist policies. Uh, he wants to make sure that Carrier doesn't fire any employees and keeps them around. And 
a lot depends on whether or not he's going to be able to get tax reform done. What should theoretically be a slam dunk for a Republican-controlled Congress has now devolved into a fighting match between Donald Trump and the Senate Majority Leader. He's not even speaking to at the moment. Who he's not speaking to. Complicated by the fact that the Senate Majority Leader's wife is Donald Trump's Transportation Secretary. It, it's At some points it's astonishing right. how all these circles overlap. Going forward, it doesn't ruin, but it takes a serious hit to the reputation of the U.S. A lot of it was leading by example, and that's, I think, in an ideal world, what it means to be a leader in a globalized environment, and right now we're leading by counterexample, and I don't know how sustainable that necessarily is. Whether or not this is something that the U.S. can eventually recover from remains to be seen. A lot depends on who we decide to elect as our next president. A lot depends on how this presidency pans out. So there's a long way to go before we can give a definitive answer to that. Many people would say that really the only domestic victory thus far for Trump and the Republicans is getting Neil Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court. Internationally, it seems that this may feel like a long, long time ago Trump carried out the strike on Syria, that that was a significant move that most political groups agreed with in the U.S. Would you point to any other significant geopolitical victories internationally for Trump's term? Are there any other actions that you've decided are objectively a good thing going forward? Getting a U.N. Security Council resolution on sanctions against North Korea is a big deal. An element of it does actually have to do with the fact that people know that there's a person who, while Despite what he says, he at least positions himself as an individual who is vindictive, who remembers when he is slighted, and is going to remember for the American public when the American people are slighted. He at least says that in public. That has some impact on the margins, but you know, I think all that is outweighed. Pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, the trade deal, that's really going to hurt the U.S., right? It essentially opens it up for China to run the table on Asian economies. And Trump's opposition to TPP was simply because Barack Obama was for it. And that's not a governing philosophy. I was reading, I believe it was a New Yorker article a couple of days ago that says Donald Trump's foreign policy is basically Obama's minus the rhetoric. If you take out the bombastic rhetoric uh, that Donald Trump uses, okay, we're going to get another 4,000 uh, troops now in Afghanistan. Do we really think that those 4,000 troops are going to bring an end to a 17-year war? Probably not. But Donald Trump doesn't have any better options, and he doesn't want to lose. And he was saying, let's pull out of Afghanistan three years ago. And they've sat down and explained to him, okay, you could do that, but it's going to be like Iraq, and you've just spent the last 10 months lambasting this guy for allowing ISIS to come up and grow like that. Do we really want to give other terrorist groups operating in Afghanistan the same opportunity? No. And he acknowledges that. So at a certain point, he does seem to recognize that there are some very difficult political realities that he can't talk his way out of. And so far, he seems to be making those decisions in line with his generals and his security apparatus. So that's somewhat hardening. In some ways, it does really seem that many decisions that have taken place within the diplomatic realm are actually a continuation of what past presidents would have done or could have done, and that he is not necessarily going against the grain at every possible opportunity. There are a number of notable junctures when perhaps he just bowed to what his advisors were saying or 
the force of history or um, there's just some sort of guiding logic that established, okay, I don't need to do anything that radical here. Let me just do something mm -hmm. that's respectable and quote-unquote presidential, which the media loves to say whenever he does something that's seemingly normal. Anyhow, so where... I know you said you're not always in the business of making big predictions, but what can we look towards for the first of the year when you guys put out your new uh, set of risk factors for 2018? Are there any things that notably would will have changed since since the 2017 one came out, or anything that you in particular yeah. are fascinated by? I think the reality has sunk in that globalization, while good for an overwhelming amount of people living in this world does come with its own baggage and that baggage is currently being felt in the developed world more but it's eventually going to be felt in the emerging market sphere as well this is going to continue to be a story for a long time the essence of it at the end of the day is inequality and it's not just inequality of finances it's an inequality of opportunity it's an inequality of access to information and things like that winners and losers are created by globalization it's always been the case right it's only now that the rest of the world is catching up to that fact and that we see it being reflected in our political decisions which just makes for a very unstable future going forward but it's going to be with us for a while so if I have to give a piece of advice, try not to get lost in every news cycle, in every ebb and flow of stories like that, because there are people that have legitimate grievances in this world, and there are always going to be politicians who try to appeal to those grievances and to get people to vote for them. Does this mean that we were going to have divisive politics for a good while longer? Yeah, probably. But cooler heads have been shown to prevail. In France, I think the one legitimate good news story of 2018 so far is that Macron, uh, you know, came beat Marine Le Pen. He started with an above 50% approval rating, and he's now somewhere in the 30s. Uh, it's it's been a precipitous drop in his approval rating, which goes to show that rhetoric is easy, governing is hard, and it remains to be seen who pulls that off well and who doesn't. And I think there were some people that held out hope that Donald Trump, despite his rhetoric, would govern in a somewhat sensible manner. I don't think we've seen that so far, but that's not to say that it's not gonna happen in the future. One can always hope. Well, thank you very much, Leon, for your sage thoughts on the geopolitical environment and uh, analysis about Trump and, and everything else between the, the US and abroad, near and far. It's a fascinating time to be in this space, and I definitely think that your organization has found a formula to really pinpoint what it is that causes political and business cycles to move and to gauge where people are concerned fundamentally about investing those levels of risk if you can figure out where that occurs, and that's really something of tremendous value. Sure. Well, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity. and. For those unfamiliar, Eurasia Group, we're big into social media, so follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And of course, my boss, Ian Bremer, is also very big like that. So 
if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in the way the world works, come check us out and engage with us. We love talking to people. This is why we got into the business, is to talk politics and to try to make sense of an increasingly crazy world. So folks should look you guys up on, on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Yes, we do not have a Snapchat yet, but stay tuned. Maybe 2018. Maybe <laughs> 2018. Well, thanks again, Leon. That was a really stimulating conversation. Next week, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud. We'll be talking about these issues again, but more with regards to New York City, Brooklyn, the local impact of the divisive political climate in America. And that's all for today. Air Brooklyn, your host, Ben Piven. Over and out. Ciao, ciao.